I'm Olivia Troy. I was Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence and served as Vice President Pence's lead staff member on the COVID-19 response. You know, I've been on the COVID task force from day one. I mean, the virus was very unpredictable at the beginning. There were a lot of unknowns, but towards the middle of February, we knew it wasn't a matter of if COVID would become a big pandemic here in the United States. It was a matter of one. But the president didn't want to hear that because his biggest concern was that we were in election year and how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success. It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax. He made a statement once that was very striking. I never forgot it because it pretty much defined who he was. When we were in a task force meeting, the president said, maybe this COVID thing is a good thing. I don't like shaking hands with people. I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people. Those disgusting people are the same people that he claims to care about. These are the people still going to his rallies today. Hi everyone, and welcome to this backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. If you can imagine being picked to be on America's White House task force to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, to be a key aide to the vice president, and to watch in horror as the president directed the task force to downplay the virus and deny the truth about what was happening to people across the country. Olivia Troy quit that task force and walked out of the White House in disgust deeply troubled by a self-serving president who didn't care for anything but his election chances. What you just heard a moment ago was an ad Olivia Troy appeared in saying as a Republican she can't vote for Trump and will support Joe Biden. And if you want to hear more, we spoke to Olivia this week about what happened inside the White House. Okay, Olivia Troy was a Homeland Security official. She went on to work in the office of the Vice President of the United States as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, serving as an aide to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dream job, it sounds like, Olivia, which seems to have morphed into some kind of a nightmare. Chris, thank you for having me. But yes, I mean, as a career intelligence officer, we often, you know, hope that someday we'll get a career assignment to the White House and get to serve in such an endeavor. And I certainly served during a very interesting time. I was there for over two years on the vice president's staff, and I had served previously for a year and a half at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, mostly focused on, to be honest, a lot of the presidential, this new president, well, the new administration's executive orders, which came into office about a about a week after I had actually started my assignment at the Department of Homeland Security. Were you fired or did you leave the White House? No, I resigned, contrary to what General Kellogg has told the nation. I was, I have to say, I was really disappointed when he did that. It was hurtful because I had a very, I had a wonderful working relationship with General Kellogg, to be honest. We spent a lot of hours together. He, uh, he knew that I was very dedicated in my role. I was the person that was on call 24 hours a day for over two years for the vice president. You know, I, I, you know, most recently was on the coronavirus task force, but I was also the person that dealt with all the mass shootings and the response to that and the natural disasters in our country. So I dealt with hurricanes and wildfires and, and flooding. I traveled with the vice president. So this was just, uh, it was it was surprising to hear that, especially to say that he had escorted me out and that my performance was declining when I had personal conversations with him about weighing why I was I was wavering on staying 
because I felt so strongly about the work and the contributions I was making with the task force members. And I was concerned about who would be the backbone and who would be supporting them and the vice president if I left. Well, you know, sorry to interrupt, but you're a pretty good company, aren't you? I mean, there's some some pretty phenomenal (laughs) talent uh, has left the White House uh, on their own and then later on had nasty things said about them. So uh, maybe it's a badge of honor. Perhaps. I mean, you know, it's if you, you know, they called me a disgruntled employee, they call anyone who speaks out against the administration, to be honest, that's what you get labeled as. But, you know, I guess you could call us disgruntled. We're disgruntled at what we saw and we're disgruntled with the president of the United States and his handling of multiple areas of national security. So I guess that could make me disgruntled. (laughs) So was there a moment that led to the resignation? I mean, or what, what led you to that threshold where, Obviously, you had thought about it a lot, and you said, that's it, I can't in good conscience stay here anymore. Yeah, there were a couple of moments, I will say. I mean, it certainly wasn't an easy two years in the White House. I saw a lot of a lot of things that gave me pause. But I will say that as the election got closer and the more I faced the political dynamics and the influence that was consistently undermining the pandemic response here domestically, it was harder to hang in there. And I knew it was going to get worse the closer the election got. And, you know, I've spoken about this uh, publicly. The Lafayette Square situation, when the president walked across and cleared out the protesters in such a violent manner so that he could have a photo op, basically, at St. John's Church, a church that's historic in the Washington, D.C. area, and just to hold a Bible. And I, it was just for me personally, that was a really low point. Because I thought to myself, the hypocrisy of having done that, the way you put our law enforcement at risk, it's in the middle of a COVID pandemic, you're doing this on purpose, you're going out there, you're holding a Bible, and not. And he doesn't pray. He doesn't give any words of encouragement or unity to our country. He just stood there holding it. And to be honest, they celebrated that moment afterwards, which was horrifying to me. I don't know how you celebrate and high five at a moment like that, when our country is not only grieving about, you know, for voices that want to be heard and the hatred and the vitriol that this president has espoused, we're also hurting because there's a major pandemic going on here. So we're struggling on all all sorts of areas. And I don't think you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who, had to, who, who did that walk regrettably, was celebrating it afterwards, for sure. Right? And a lot of no, people I in the military was, condemned that he was even right. there. I think he was uh, ashamed. And, you know, there have been statements made, like a lot of them didn't know. I wouldn't put it past some of the political circles that they probably didn't tell them the full story of what was about to happen. I've certainly seen that before, where you walk into a situation, you think something's about to develop the way you planned it or the way you anticipated it. And then the next thing you know, it goes off the rails and you're part of an operation and you're sitting there thinking, how did I get here? I think that's how I felt sometimes in the task force meetings. It was just sort of a, a realistic slap in the face at times when we would have a policy in place and we're going to go give a message to the American public about how serious this was. And then the president gets up and refers to it as a democratic hoax or says, you know, this is going to go away in a matter of days. I mean, I don't know how you counter that. The COVID-19 is going to disappear. Can you explain to people overseas as well as, you know, we have listeners in America, but I mean, I'm talking to you from London how did this thing rip in a country most people thought would have been the best prepared to, to deal with it? Was it the president's messaging 
or is it because of the system there where each state and governor gets to set the stage for how that state is going to deal with it, or is it a marriage of all those things? You know, I think it's a combination of both, but I will say this. The issue was that the person at the very top, the president, the person who is in the Oval Office, was setting the tone for the entire response. And he was pressuring these governors at times. He was telling them to get in line. And that's where you start to see a big divide between the Republican governors and the Democratic governors. You see politics play out in a response where politics really shouldn't have been involved at all. It should have been a united effort to protect the American people. And that is primarily the number one failure of this. It was just politicizing it from the first day. And we never, we never stood a chance against that. And I, you know, we, I saw, I was in the governor's calls, the weekly calls where the president would talk, you know, sometimes he would attend them. And there was a focus along the way saying, you must open up your state, you must do this. There's a way to do that in an, in a safe and organized manner, but that's not what happened. And you're seeing no, this true. play out in a lot of states. You're seeing it. I mean, I'm from Texas. Texas is in a really bad situation right now. My hometown of El Paso is not looking good this winter. There's a lot of states that are facing a very harsh winter. And the president was told this in the spring. He was told by people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, Dr. Riffle, all of the doctors on the task force said, if we don't get control of this right now, during the time and buy some time for ourselves in the fall or winter, we are going to be facing a terrible situation. And that and is Trump, where we are today. Did Trump just not feel that he could he could handle it and 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 make a success out of it? And therefore, he just wanted to put it behind him all the time and say the pandemic is, you know, and he constantly says it, right? I mean, he's called CNN dumb bastards this week for continually talking about COVID-19. He wants it to go away. Did he not feel that he could have a, a win on this by locking down the U.S. and doing what he needed to do? I think, you know, we were in election year, and I think he was focused on making sure that the narrative and the messaging on this was aligned with his, you know, his own reality of what, of, of the world he lives in. And the world that Donald Trump lives in is not the same world that any of the rest of us live in. It's it's a false reality. And I think that it was an, it was a challenge every single day to try to figure out how to navigate this. And you're seeing it now. I mean, he's, you know, at first he used Dr. Fauci in an ad saying that he was praising him. He took his words out of context. Now he's reversed course because that didn't work. Right. And when, when something doesn't work, he doubles down on it and he will. And when somebody speaks out against him, he really goes after them. And that's what he's doing now with Dr. Fauci. And he's, you know, he's trying to play down the pandemic once again by saying the media is lying to you and, and they're, they're overplaying this. Well, we're hearing from doctors and nurses in states who are saying it's happening again. We're seeing this, it's looking really bad. They're the ones that are treating people. They're the first line medical workers who are suffering. And so I think it's really offensive actually to have the president of the United States calling, you know, CNN dumb and, you know, attacking Dr. Fauci and others. You said now that Fauci is a disaster. Right. He's going out to discredit him after this 60 Minutes program over the weekend. And actually, Fauci has been fairly couched in his references to, to President Trump. I mean, he has said things like he should wear a mask, but he hasn't come out, been critically in a political way, correct? 
Now, Dr. Fauci has always been very measured in the way he speaks publicly. He is all he has served for decades, right? He served for administrations on both sides. Years, according to right, and uh, and so I think you know you were starting to see Dr. Fauci speak out a little more, and I think he's right to defend himself. Right, enough. I mean, we he has been literally attacked and undermined, and he is a you know the president has gone after him to discredit him mm-hmm. for months now, and. You know, those attacks and that public sentiment that the president expresses also have an impact on the welfare of his family, right? I mean, he has, I was there when the first threats came in. This this has been going on for months. And so whenever the president doubles down on someone like that, you see what happens. You see the threats increase, threats on his family, threats on his life. You see this on governors. You see this on the governor from Michigan who... The president consistently attacked for not getting in line and made fun of her and said liberated Michigan for her stance on COVID and protecting her the citizens of her state. And then you see that the FBI thwarted this attack. So when you're the president, words matter and people are watching and they're going to react to what you're saying. You were with not President Trump so much, but you were with Vice President Pence. Did he in private? show frustration about the way the president handles it, or does he just sign up on this and and support him no matter what? I certainly saw him struggle at times. I think, you know, I saw every member of the task force struggle because they were trying to do the right thing. And it's very hard to deal with a dynamic dynamic when the outlier is a president and he he's your boss. And for the vice president, unfortunately, he works for Donald Trump and he's going to walk a fine line every single day on it. But at the end of the day, he chose, he chose this ticket, right? He had a choice. He chose the ticket. He, he, he could have, he didn't choose to have his backbone taken out, but uh, let, let's leave it. The, the White House pressured the CDC to, to downplay risks of sending children back to school. Is that right? They did. It was uh, one of the many examples of, you know, the White House intervening on CDC guidelines and changing the wording because they felt it was too restrictive. And they looked at the data and there were certainly efforts to manipulate the data and to have it reflect that it only, you know, the COVID only affected the elderly or people at a certain age, which quite frankly, the data was inconclusive on that. And we know that it affects people of all ages. We know that it affects younger children. And the one thing I think the experts have said is we don't know the long-term effects on anybody. I mean, there are so many unknowns about this virus. So once again, you know, with the school guidelines, we put people at risk. And it was politics over science and data and the facts. You're not the first former national security advisor that I've talked to who, uh, you know, who have come out against President Trump and said that he's unfit uh, for office. Do you think when you stand up like this, I mean, you've put everything on the line here and I don't doubt you've probably received some threats yourself. You can tell me, you, you know, maybe you can tell me if you have, but does it make a difference or does Trump's demographics, his audience, they don't tend to listen to any of this stuff? I think it does make a difference for the people out there who are still kind of figuring out what happened and are undecided, or perhaps that Trump voter who voted for him the first time around, 
but it's sort of taking a step back and saying, well, wait a second, what really happened here? You know, the, the, the hatred and the, the rhetoric that he's using and the COVID, you know, cases that continue to increase, you know, I think, I think it impacts those people. Does it impact the completely 100% loyalist in the Trump base? No, but I don't think anything is ever going to reach those people, right? These are the same people that will show up at the rallies, put their own lives at risk and put the lives of their families and their communities around them because they'll leave this rally and they could potentially carry the virus back without even knowing it and give it to their neighbor and give it to people in their community. And, you know, those are the people that will be impacted and die. And those people didn't choose to go to that rally, right? They've been protecting themselves, but they were exposed because of this Trump ideology, so to speak. And this, this, I would say, you know, this group of people that just is unwavering. Yeah, it's, it's kind of became a freedom issue, right? I mean, where, where he said, you know, re, kind of release, release your state. And uh, people sudden, suddenly digested that as some kind of threat to their freedom to wear a mask. I mean, it's incredible. Have you received threats to yourself? We yeah. have. My family has received threats. We've, we've had the people, you know, harassing us. I mean, we were prepared. And, you know, I, it was a very hard decision to do this. I didn't, it wasn't something I did lightly. And I knew that it would come with great consequence. But I really felt strongly that was morally the right thing to do, regardless of what that would mean for my future and my career and, and what would happen. Well, I'm really proud of you. And I mean, I don't know you, but I'm very proud of you. And I, I think what you did is you, you know, you've stood up where you needed to be. And and there's a lot of great people that have done the same thing. But can, can you tell me, where does America go if Trump is reelected in November? Is that something you want to contemplate? I think we'll be, I think America will not be America. We will be a very different place if we have four more years of Trump. And I think we'll all have to take a step back, especially with the Republican Party. And I'll say that, actually, I think the Republican Party has a major step to take back and reassess of where they're going, because I do think that there's a difference between being a Republican and being a Trump Republican. But right now, I do think that the Republican Party has been hijacked. And I think we have a serious problem in that space. And that's going to be something that I think we will wrestle with going forward. And I say that as a lifelong Republican, right, who interned at, you know, the Republican National Committee. I was a presidential appointee by President Bush. And then I eventually, you know, left to become a career intel officer, which, you know, then you check your politics at the door and you serve neutrally, which is what I have for, for over a decade now. But I, you know, as a private citizen, I think we are in a very challenging place. Are you worried about chaos on election night? I mean, if there is not a clear win by Biden. A lot of people are predicting, as, as some states are going to have to wait for these mail-in ballots, that, I mean, there can be, you know, armed chaos in places. I am concerned about that. And I am concerned that the president will incite that because that is what he does. He encourages it. He has encouraged violence. He has encouraged, you know, he taps himself as a president of law and order, but he encourages violence in cities, whether people realize this or not because he thinks it plays to his favor. Now think about that. Think about the fact that we have a president who is encouraging violence on Americans and in towns because it, he thinks that it'll make him look good in the end and it will help his reelection chances. There's something really wrong about that picture. 
Truth is uh, stranger than fiction, Olivia, and it's incredible, uh, you know, what's going on in the U.S. And we hope, uh, you know, the best for America after this election and that uh, this kind of deep division somehow are able to heal over time. And look, I really appreciate your time. Terrific to talk to you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's this backstory on America's health and political and looming constitutional crisis. And I personally have great admiration for Olivia Troy's bravery to speak out. Would you? Could you? She's taken all kinds of professional and personal risks in doing so. But that's what patriots do. It's really patriotic duty over personal interests. And if Biden wins, I think he has an obligation to hire these heroes back who won't serve the Democrats, but serve American people. That's how you heal the nation, is to bring everybody together. Please subscribe to Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.